One of the greatest issues facing the, the church at large around the world today is the attack against the gospel. Attack against this good news of Jesus Christ. Sadly, even, even people who claim to be evangelicals have attacked the gospel, have attacked Jesus Christ. So, I have a question for you to think about today. What does it then mean to be an evangelical? What does that mean to be an evangelical? We often talk about that. We see it in books, blogs, so forth. But what does that mean? Well, for many, the term evangelical sadly has been robbed of its meaning that it once carried. And uh, that's understandably so, because uh, if you understand the history of this, you'll, you'll understand why. See, back in the 1940s, if you joined ranks with the evangelicals, you were actually distinguishing yourself from other groups of people who professed to be Protestants. But with the changing of the times, sadly, there's been coming this blurring of the lines. There's been confusion rising popularity of the ecumenical movement has sadly produced a theological minimalism. This idea that you can water down the gospel to, to, to try to bring more people together. So we, we lessen the truth so that we can have unity. That's the idea there. So what is an evangelical then? Well, a, a straight, simple answer is kind of difficult to come up with, frankly. By the very origin of the word, it might be helpful to understand that uh, we can tell that an evangelical is simply someone who identifies himself with the evangel. So in the word evangelical, you'll see the word evangel. Evangel comes from a Greek word, which means gospel. It means good news. So then somebody who is an evangelical is someone who is identifying himself or herself with the good news of Jesus Christ. Literally, you're identifying with Jesus. It's kind of another way of saying a Christian, sort of. But what exactly is that evangel? What exactly is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus Christ according to the Bible? Since the Bible is our standard, it is our authority, that's where we're going to draw from. So I'm asking you to figuratively pull up your chair and listen. See if we can kind of sort through this together. Now when we're asking what the gospel is, we are really asking an ultimate question. See, we're not just talking about somebody's hobby horse. This isn't my hobby horse. This is the, uh, we're, we're not just talking about differences in hermeneutics or how you interpret the Bible here. We are making assumptions. We are talking about assertions on the worldview level. In other words, we're making a case for a story that covers all other stories. We're trying to make sense of our world. And that's what all religious worldviews do. There's many various worldviews that we could talk about, and, and they all address these three big questions that are on the screen here for you. Number one, what is the nature of the religious ultimate? 
all worldviews will attempt to answer that. In other words, they're, they're asking and answering who is God? Of what does the ultimate spiritual existence consist? What does that look like? Number two, what's the nature of the human predicament? See, we have a predicament. We have a problem. What is actually wrong with you? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? Number three, what's the solution to our problem, our predicament then? Okay, all worldviews will attempt to answer those three questions. And so we're, we're asking in that third one there, what are we to do? What are we to do with our problem? See, we're not as good as we want to be. Uh, uh, there's a lot of evil in our world. Why is that? And what's the solution? So all worldviews will attempt to answer that. And of course, I believe the Bible answers it way better than all the others. Because only God knows our heart. So the Bible presents clear answers for each one of the basic questions. These ultimate questions. And, and, and really, it's all wrapped up in the gospel message. All three of those questions are answered in the good news about Jesus Christ. So let's, let's head down this path together. But before we, we get more into the positive aspect of what is the gospel, I think it will be helpful for us to head off some of the false ideas that are out there. In other words, what the gospel's not. What the gospel is not. What is the... What, false views of the gospel. Here they are. Number one. The gospel is not simply that we are okay. A lot of people think they're okay. For example, one of my favorite questions to ask people is, do you think you're a good person? You ever ask someone that? By the way, when you're evangelizing someone, ask them that question. It's a good one to get a conversation going. So you're going to try to draw them out. Do, do, do you think you're a good person? A lot of people think they're a good person. That's usually what people will tell me when I ask them that question. Many people think our biggest problem is that I don't have enough self-esteem. I have small self-esteem. I, you know, I don't love myself enough. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that belief? Well, there's presumptions behind that particular view, and, and sadly, those presumptions are unbiblical. That way of thinking is actually against God's way of thinking. This secular definition of the human problem is presupposing something that's not actually biblical. It, see, it, it's presupposing that I should esteem myself better because I'm really a good person. I'm really good at heart. My problem is, you know, my horrible family, my, my really bad environment. You know, I was born in a third world country or, or poverty or whatever it might be, right? And because of that... It, you know, my environment, I act this way. So it's presupposing something that, that I'm really good at heart. In fact, I'm better than I think I am. Some have called that the self-esteem gospel. This self-esteem gospel is answering the worldview question, of course, differently from how God answers it in the Bible. And so we need to now come to the Bible here in Romans chapter 3. 
And I want you to see how God answers this big worldview question. What is the nature of the human problem according to the Bible? So look with me, Romans 3, verse 10. Romans 3, verse 10. And the Apostle Paul, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, as it is written, so he's now going to quote from the Old Testament. The Old Testament said this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. How many do good? How many are good people? According to God, no one is good. So what is humanity's biggest problem then? What's your biggest problem? It's sin. Sin's the biggest problem. See, sin doesn't just make your heart desperately sick. It's worse than that. Sin actually kills you. See, before I became a Christian, I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home, but that didn't make me a Christian. I was a good kid, but that didn't make me a Christian. I did a lot of good things, a lot of good works, but that didn't make me a Christian. I was baptized, but that didn't make me a Christian. I went to church at least twice a week, but that didn't make me a Christian. I went to a Christian school. That didn't make me a Christian. I did amazing things as a child, but it did not make me a Christian. See, I was actually, the Bible says, in Ephesians 2, dead in my trespasses and sins. I was earning death as the paycheck for my disobedience and rebellion against God. See, I was doing my thing my way. (laughs) Even as a little five-year-old. My sin had shut me up to spiritual death and eternal separation from God. So if we omit sin, then, from our preaching, from our evangelism, from our teaching, we're actually preaching a different gospel. And so if if that is the case, my friend, if, if you omit sin in your evangelism, you and I need to repent. That's a sin, to leave sin out of your evangelism. It is a sin to leave sin out of preaching. And we need to preach God's truth. Praise God. When I was young, God opened my eyes to my sin and showed me the solution, who is Jesus, who paid the penalty for my sin. So we need to understand, my friends, that the gospel is not just simply saying, well, I'm okay, I'm a good person. No, that's false. And number two, the gospel is not simply that God is love. Oh my, how often do we hear this? from pulpits and from smiley suit-dressed guys who stand behind the pulpit and write best-selling books who, who say this very thing, that God is love. I'm not going to deny that God is not love because the Bible clearly says God is love in 1 John chapter 4. But God is love is something that is commonly misinterpreted. It's 
often misused. It's a popular thing for preachers to say. Evangelists love saying this. And they assume that God's love is the only divine attribute that is somehow important. My friends, that's a huge mistake to make. Simplistically equating God with uh, love actually leads to error. It, it is all, way off balance. Some might say mathematically that if God equals love, then turn it around. Love equals God. And of course, that is false. <laughs> love does not equal God. If God becomes equated with love, then love then becomes God. Theologically, we know that there's many other things that characterize God. God has so many attributes. And I'm not even going to attempt to list them all because I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll leave some out. But you understand, my friends, God is multifaceted. He is more than just love. And so to reduce God or His gospel to just love is actually idolatry. We have anybody who does that has formed a God in their own mind that, that doesn't represent the God of the Bible. So my friends, by all means, believe that God is love. But He's much more than that. Number three, the gospel is not simply that Jesus wants to be our friend. Does Jesus want to be your friend? Well, of course He does. Of course He does. But it's on His terms, not yours. Have you ever heard that slogan, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship? You ever heard that? Christianity is not a religion. That's true. That is true. It, it is true that Christianity is a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God has taken us, He's taken us in as His adopted sons and daughters, the Bible says that Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. He's not. And whoever does the will of the Father is considered by Jesus as family. That's true. The Bible says so. But yet, yet we need to understand Christianity is not Christianity, sorry, is not simply some casual friendship with Jesus. It's more than that. See, the gospel is not simply the cultivation of a friendship. It's all about bringing glory to God. Why does God save people? It's for His glory. So we need to understand the purpose behind that. Otherwise, we can fall off into this error thinking the gospel is just simply Jesus wanting to be our friend. Number four. The gospel is not simply that we should live right. The gospel is not simply that we should live right. You ever heard people who think this way? I, we, we just heard it from one of our own church members last week. A friend of his, right? Who thought that being a Christian means you just tick all the boxes. you got to do all the Ten Commandments, for example. If I'm obeying all the Ten Commandments, tick them off. Yep, I'm a Christian. Right? It's, it's like that rich young ruler who came to Jesus. Remember in the Bible, it talks about somebody who is a very religious person who came to Jesus saying, hey, I've done all the Ten Commandments. 
But he was still wondering how to have eternal life. And so Jesus showed him, no, you don't get to heaven by keeping all the Ten Commandments. Because no one can do that except Jesus. You cannot be a good enough person to get to heaven. And some people say that the gospel is just simply this message that I I need to change my behavior. I need to be a good person. You know, I need to don't steal, don't lie, and, uh, you know, do those sort of things, and that'll get me to heaven. Do good works, and that'll get me to heaven. No, it doesn't work that way. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, you're not saved by works, lest anyone should boast. But you're saved through Jesus, by grace, through faith in Jesus. So the good news is somehow seen as consisting in some set of virtues for some people. If I'm a virtuous person, that'll get me to heaven. And if I'm living these virtues, then guess what? I'm pleasing God. God's going to smile on me. And if I'm helping other people, helping old grannies across the street or feeding poor or whatever it is, you know, digging wells for third world countries and planting cornfields, and, and, uh, then surely that's going to get me into heaven. However, if the gospel is just a change of our behavior that is somehow accomplished in my own strength, in my way, then what does that do to the gospel? What does that do to the good news? It reduces the gospel to just moralism. In other words, live a moral life. And that's what's pleasing to God. In other words, we've begun to think that the gospel just is is a veneer. It's, it's just a, a, a very shallow thing. It's just an outward moral renovation. Hmm. No, it's much more than that. In reality, the gospel penetrates all the way. It's a total change. As the Bible says, the old man, the old creature is done away. Behold, all things become new. <laughs> so the gospel penetrates all the way through, it's a total spiritual transformation. So those are some of the false ideas of what the gospel's not. So let's think about the positive then. What are the essential elements of the gospel? What are these very important parts of the good news? And so my friends, whenever we talk about the gospel, it's very helpful and and very important to remember Four essentials. These are things that I always carry with me in my mind whenever I talk to someone about the gospel. I want to carry on a conversation about Jesus and the Bible with somebody. This is my, my grid. This is my outline that I have in my mind. I encourage you to memorize this so that even if you don't have a Bible, you don't have a gospel track with you, at least you have some guide to carry on a conversation. So here's what I'm thinking, and this is not original with me. I found this a long time ago from an organization called Nine Marks. Here here they are. Number one, it's God. We start with God. And then we can move on to mankind. Number three, of course, is Christ. And then response. So God, man, Christ, and then response. All right. Let's talk about these and see what the Bible says, okay? 
First of all, we start with God. Who is God? The holy God is both our sovereign creator, but he's also our righteous judge. The Bible talks a lot about this. Let me just share a few verses here with you on the screen. Nehemiah 9, verse 6, the words of of God say this, You are the Lord, you alone, who have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Here's another one, Psalm 98, verse 9 says, the Lord will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So in these verses, just a small part of the Bible, carry this idea that that God is our sovereign creator. In other words, he reigns supreme over all of his creation. He's the one who made it. He made it all. And because he is the creator of everything... That makes him the righteous judge, the one who is worthy to be the judge over his creation. So God has the ownership. It's all his. He's owner over us by virtue, just just the very fact that he created us. The Bible says one day we're going to be held accountable to the creator. He has the right to punish. He also has the right to reward us. And my friends, that's where we need to start. Because if we don't understand that foundational truth of the gospel, the rest of it doesn't really make sense. See, if you start with, I don't know, something like that God is love, which is true, but if you start there, and that's all you talk about God, then people are going to, they're not going to really see their sin and, and the problem of their sin They're not going to desire a Savior. So, we got to start with this, that God is holy. That God is unique. He's distinct. He is separate from His creation because He doesn't sin. He's perfect in all ways. And so, because He's holy, He can't allow sin into His heaven. Sin has to be dealt with. And so we have to then move on to point number two and show that man was created by God to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But there's a problem. See, the Bible doesn't start in, stop, sorry, the Bible doesn't stop with the first chapter. We come to Genesis chapter 3 and we find that man sinned against God by disobeying His law. Therefore, man earned God's wrath. See, my friends, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God makes man. Why did God make man? He didn't do it because he was lonely. God didn't make mankind because he was lonely, needed fellowship, and somehow was was dependent upon his creation. No, that's not why he did it. He made man to glorify himself so that man would enjoy him forever. But when you come to Genesis chapter 3, we have this, this massive turn of events 
where mankind fell into sin, God had told Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did Adam and Eve do? They ate. They ate. They somehow didn't believe that God was good. They ate of that fruit, and mankind fell into sin. And everybody since Adam and Eve has been born a sinner. Look at Romans 3. Again, we we see this problem here. Romans 3.23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a problem, my friends. In fact, that's your greatest problem. See, even though we were born perfect, we were born to glorify God and enjoy Him, we sinned through Adam. Adam disobeyed God's law. God said, don't eat of that one fruit. And Adam rebelled. And so man earned God's wrath. I want you to see this in Romans 1. Verse 18. Romans 1.18. Look at this. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the problem we have. We as men, mankind, we suppress the truth. We know there's a God. We know there's a God. God's given us all a conscience. We can see His creation. And as a result, we, we know attributes, certain attributes of God by just seeing His creation. But much of mankind has rejected God. They don't want to be held accountable to their Creator. That's the problem we have. But there is a solution. And so we move to the third part of the Gospel, and it's all to do with Christ. My friends, you must understand this. Look at number three here. That Christ's death was the substitute payment for the penalty of our sin. The Bible says that Jesus was buried after His death on the cross, but He didn't stay in the ground. He rose again. That's the good news. So His death is God's only provision for the forgiveness of your sin. See, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's like a paycheck. See, when you work... You get a paycheck, right? You get a wage when you work. You do a job, you get paid. You've earned something for the hours that you've worked. And the Bible says, what you earn for your sin is death. And the worst part of that is the eternal death. Eternally separated from God in hell. That's the worst part. But see, Jesus' death then pays the penalty for your sin. His death is God's only provision for the forgiveness of mankind's sin. And then Jesus' resurrection from the dead shows that God's wrath was appeased. It shows that God accepted the sacrifice of His Son. Look what the Bible says. 
The prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 6 said this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him. That's Jesus. God laid on Jesus the iniquity or sin of us all. Here's another one that's saying a similar idea. John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, my friend, notice what John is saying there. You need to be saved from God. You need to be saved from God. The thing you need to fear the most is God Himself. See, God made hell for Satan and the demons. But the Bible also says in John chapter 3, if you continue on in your unbelief, you will get what you want. If you want to remain separated from God, you don't want to be held accountable to God. If you want to reject Jesus and stay in that unbelief, God will leave you there. If you don't turn to Jesus in trust and in faith, you are condemned already, the Bible says. And you will receive this eternal condemnation. But we can respond. We don't have to stay in unbelief. And that's point number four. There must be a response. There has to be a response to this good news. Here it is, my friends. We are called to respond to this good news in repentance and belief. In other words, you have to turn away from your sin, reject your sin, forsake your sin, and turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus alone. In fact, this is what Jesus himself preached when he was here on earth. I'll give you just one reference here. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, that Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, what's this gospel? What's the good news? Here's what Jesus said. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. You say, what does it mean to repent? What does that mean? When Jesus says, repent and believe, what does that look like? I like to look, say it's, it's like this. I'm walking down a road. I'm walking down this path, right? I'm headed that way. That way is eternal destruction. That way is my way. It's like Jesus said in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's the broad way that most people are headed to that leads to destruction, that leads to hell. My sin and my way is taking me that way. My unbelief is taking me that way. And for someone to repent, they have to stop going this way. They have to turn around, reject their way, their sin, their unbelief. They have to believe in Jesus and follow His way. Repentance is a total change of mind in regard to my sin. See, I have to see my sin the way God sees it. That's our problem. <laughs> Most people don't see the way their sin the way God sees it. Most people, unbelievers, love their sin. They love it. They don't want to forsake it. 
So we have to see it the way God sees it so that we can then forsake it and love Jesus. So that's a response. There has to be a response. We must believe this good news or there is no salvation. Well, there's some other verses in the Bible that help us to define what is the gospel. So let's talk about one in particular that is incredibly helpful, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So turn, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul pointedly says here that this is the gospel. This is the good news. So if you want to know what it is, my friend, you want to know what the gospel is? Well, this gives us a very helpful outline. It, it, it outlines the gospel for us. Let's just read it together, and then we can draw out some points from this text. Please follow in your Bibles, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. We'll just stop there, because these are some very important points. Number one, the gospel is a complete message according to the Scriptures. Let me just explain that from this text. The gospel is a complete message according to the Scriptures. Now, there's a couple implications coming from our text here. The passage says twice, in fact, it says twice, according to the Scriptures. So it's, it, it's talking about the Bible, God's Word. That phrase has two implications. The first implication is that the gospel message is found only in the Scriptures. The good news of Jesus is found only in the Scripture, only in the Bible. You won't find it anywhere else. In other words, the salvation message is confined exclusively to the Bible. The second implication is that the gospel is found in the totality of Scripture. After all, Jesus said in Luke 24, it's all about him. At least the Old Testament is what he was referring to when he said that. So even in the Old Testament, you find the gospel. There's not two gospels. <laughs> There's not a gospel of the Old Testament and one of the new. No, the whole thing talks about the good news of Jesus Christ. The whole Bible has something to contribute to this conversation, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. So the gospel is a complete message according to the scriptures. Number two, the gospel is about knowing the identity of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is showcasing Christ. He's putting Christ up for show as the subject of the gospel. That's what he says in verse 3. He says, For I delivered you as of first importance 
what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. So the good news is all about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. So it's all about his person and his work. And so we, we then we need to understand who the Jesus of the Bible is. Who is the true Jesus? We have to explain, those of us who know Jesus, then in our evangelism we have to explain the Jesus of the Bible. Not a Jesus of our own making or other people's ideas. We have to know the true identity of Jesus. See, we are, my friends, you and I, if you're a Christian, you are not in the business of just simply spewing out some, some data or a few facts about Jesus You and I are charged with a mandate to reveal the true nature of an infinite God. The true nature of an infinite God. See, this is important because there's many religions, cults, and sects who actually believe in Jesus. They do. For example, the Muslims believe in Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus. Catholics believe in Jesus. Right? There, there's many people who believe in Jesus. But is their view of Jesus the accurate view of Jesus? Do they view Jesus the way Jesus sees himself? Right? Some of these other religions would say that Jesus is only a prophet or he's, he's a good teacher. Uh, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is deity. They don't believe that he is God. Or, you know, some of these other religions, they, they, might, they might say, hey, I believe in Jesus, but I have to add my good works to Jesus in order to be a Christian. See, it's Jesus plus my good works equals salvation. No, it doesn't work that way. It's only Jesus. And so we've got to make sure that we're clear on the Jesus of the Bible and that we identify him properly so that we then can communicate the true Jesus. Number three, the gospel is about knowing what Jesus did. Not just who he is, but what did he do? Well, look at verse three. First Corinthians 15, three says that the death of Christ here is of first importance. Now, why did Christ have to die? He came to die. In fact, we even sing a song. The title of the song is Born to Die. But why did Jesus have to die? Well, verse 3 says, it's because of your sin. It's because of your sin Jesus died. And so we must talk about sin then when we're talking to unbelievers. When we preach the gospel to unbelievers, we must talk about sin. And unfortunately, that's not popular today. I don't know if it's ever been popular, but in in order for people to be receptive to the good news, they have to first realize there's some bad news. And so we got to tell people what sin is. We have to tell them that sin is lawlessness, according to 1 John. Sin is lawlessness. We've broken God's law. Sin's a personal offense against a holy God. Sin's breaking his law. And so we, we have to use God's law then to convict people of their sin. That's why I like to use the Ten Commandments. Again, that's not original with me. 
So if you want people to understand that they've broken God's law, just just start, go through the Ten Commandments. Ask them, have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen anything? You, know, just, you go through those Ten Commandments, it shows people that they're not actually a good person. It shows them that they're sinners, that they need a Savior. See, people need to know they, they can't save themselves from their sin. See, after they recognize they're a sinner, then they need to see their lostness, their hopelessness without a Savior. They, they have to be told that the wages of sin is death. Without total forgiveness of their sin, no one can please God and no one can enter into heaven. Number four, the gospel is a call to repentance. We've already talked a little bit about this, but we have to call unbelievers to repent of their sins. You don't call them to repent of, I don't know, something else that isn't sin. You've got to be specific. What are they repenting of? Sin. They have to change their mind about their sin. Again, this is what Jesus preached over and over. I'll give you another example. Luke 24, verse 46. Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So what did Jesus tell his disciples to preach? And by the way, that carries over to you. If you're a disciple of Jesus today, you have the same message. The message hasn't changed. Tell Jesus that tell them about Jesus, the one who suffered, who died, rose again. Why did he do that? So that you could repent. That you would repent. Jesus has offered forgiveness of your sins. That's what he says here. So the gospel is a call to repentance. Number five, the gospel is about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Don't leave that part off. <laughs> oh boy, I've made that mistake a lot, I, sadly. I'll talk about Jesus' death, but I don't talk about his resurrection sometimes. But if you look in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, you'll see that is what the Holy Spirit says. Because verse 4 says he was buried, but he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that is, this is what the Apostle Paul's whole argument is. He's going to carry on in the whole chapter to show that Jesus arose from the grave. And what are the implications of that? What does that mean for you and me? See, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there's no Christianity, there is no salvation, there is no forgiveness of sins if Jesus is still in the ground. In, in, in short, our faith is futile, verse 14 says. So by rising from the dead, which he did, Jesus then secures victory in many ways. He, he secures victory over our sin, over death, hell, Satan, and even the world itself. His death secures our eternal salvation. And so, my friends, we have to believe this because this is part of the gospel, that Jesus is alive. That's good news. But the text also tells us this, number six, that the gospel is received by faith. The gospel has to be received. See, verse 2 says that these Corinthian Christians were saved because they believed in the gospel. 
They accepted it by faith, by faith alone, not good works. Good works don't get you to heaven. You have to believe, trust in Jesus. And so let's not forget that the object of faith is very important because there is this false idea that's even being proclaimed from pastors and preachers and evangelists that you just need to have faith. Have faith. That's great, but I, I fear there's a lot of people who are having faith in the wrong object because they're never being told what should be the object of their faith. See, if your faith is in you, you're in trouble. You are lost. You are dead in your sins. The object of faith is very important. The object of our faith and belief has to be in the Jesus of the Bible. So, this passage helps define the gospel for us. Well, the, the Bible goes on and on to talk about the gospel. So let me just give you some hills to die on. You ever heard that phrase, hills to die on? I, I like that phrase because there are some non-essentials that uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm willing to take a bullet through the brain. Okay? Right? But there are some things in the Bible that I call essentials that I'm willing to take the bullet through the brain. Do you know the difference? We need to know the difference. There are some hills to die on, and there are some things that you just... Okay. <laughs> there can be some diversity. All right? So if you find yourself or somebody else denying any of these four things, then the biblical gospel's actually been compromised. They are preaching a false gospel if they don't include these four things. All right? Let's talk about them. Number one is the virgin birth. The virgin birth is a, an essential of the faith, a fundamental of the faith. The Bible talks about this in many places, like Isaiah chapter 7, Matthew chapter 1, just to name a few. And so I get this. Uh, one time I was reading. Uh, a systematic theology by Louis Burkhoff. And I remember it just it, it struck me one day, what a beautiful truth about the virgin birth. How important this is. In order for, uh, to, to become the Messiah, to be the one who would pay the penalty for sin, Christ had to become a man. God became man. We call it the incarnation. But there's this idea that if Jesus had a human father, which he didn't, that's why the virgin birth is important, then if he did have a human father, if Joseph was actually Jesus' earthly human father, then he would have been tainted by sin, he would have been tainted with guilt, he would have been disqualified from taking in himself the substitutionary penalty for the guilt of all humanity. He would have. But of course Jesus didn't have an earthly father. And so the Holy Spirit impregnated Jesus into Mary so that he would not have a sin nature. So Jesus was perfect. He was God and man, two natures in one person, and will be, by the way, for all eternity. That is a hill to die on, the virgin birth. Number two, another hill to die on. I'm willing to take a bullet through the brain for the deity of Christ. 
the deity of Christ is very important. Again, I, I remember getting this idea from a, the systematic theology by Burkhoff. I was struck by this idea that sin is so bad. Sin is so heinous. It's infinitely heinous and deserves infinite punishment because it's committed against a God who's infinite. See, the problem was, most of my life, I didn't really understand just how bad my sin was. See, sin is infinitely heinous because of the one who you sinned against. See, if I sin against you, that's bad, okay? Don't get me wrong. It is really bad. But we're, we're talking a totally different level. The sin between you and me and the sin between me and God. Totally different level. You're not infinite. I'm not infinite. And that makes it all the much different. See, people can bear the wrath of God in hell infinitely, but they'll never be saved because they're not infinite. And so only that which is essentially infinite then can go on to offer an infinite sacrifice for sin. And that's why it required Jesus. Because Jesus is infinite. He was then able to offer the infinite sacrifice the most valuable sacrifice that there is that would then appease an infinite God so that God would redeem His people from their sin. Does that make sense? I, I hope so. Another hill to die on is this. It's, it, we call it the substitutionary atonement. It's all part of the gospel. See, substitutionary atonement. Let's take that first word. You see the word substitute? In other words, Jesus is the substitute. In other words, Jesus takes my place. See, I deserve to die on the cross for my own sin. I deserve to go to hell for my sin. But praise God, I'm not going to hell because Jesus took my place. He was my substitute. And what did he accomplish? He accomplished atonement. I like that word. It's a beautiful word. If you don't know it, I encourage you to study more about it. If you break it down, it might help. Atonement means at-one-ment. At-one-ment. It's this idea that, my friend, as an unbeliever, see, someone who's never put your faith and trust in Christ alone, you are an enemy of God. You're His enemy. But because Jesus came and bore God's wrath, he receives God's wrath so that you can now become God's friend. You, are now, you now are able to have this beautiful relationship with God. So the atonement is absolutely necessary because of God's justice. God is a just God. God can't overlook sin. God has to deal with sin. And so it's at the cross that we see how love and mercy meet. So the atonement is necessarily substitutionary because we're not able to then bear that penalty for sin. We could never do that. Even if I was nailed on the cross, it would have never paid for my sin. Never. It never would have restored any sort of broken relationship between me and God. All I would have done was suffer physically would have never dealt with my sin. So Jesus did that for me. 
and for you. Number four, another hill to die on is a physical resurrection. I'll take a bullet through the brain for this one. See, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus in Colossians, he calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. Now, there's a false religion that'll take that and say, see, Jesus was born. Jesus was created. No, he wasn't. That's not what that means. Look at it in its context. All right? Look at what that word means. Firstborn from the dead. Uh, well, it doesn't mean that Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead. That's certainly not true. Because Jesus himself in John chapter 11 raised Lazarus from the dead. So that, that can't be what it means. So what does it mean? It, it, it's this idea that his resurrection is more than just some mere restoration of physical life. It's more than that. It is that his resurrected body, which of course still carries scars, wounds, that his body is glorified. It's incorruptible. And Paul carries that thought on in 1 Corinthians 15 to say that that's what's going to happen to you and me as Christians. We're going to receive a physical body one day that just as Jesus had, you and I will have. It'll be incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven. <laughs> Christ's physical resurrection is the Father's declaration of victory over death. It shows the vindication of, that Christ was perfect and holy. It shows that He's the instrument of our justification He's also the model for our own resurrection. Let me just think of some application here quickly. What is the function of the gospel in the life of any local church, including ours? The, the gospel should be functional. There should be a functional centrality in our church and in our individual lives. I just want to think. I want us to think about this in four ways. I'll put on the screen here for you. So I'm, I'm really arguing that this this concept that I've drawn from other people is there's this functional centrality of the gospel in our lives, and it, and it should it should have an outflowing into every part of our life, particularly as a church, as a local church. In, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that the gospel should be at the center of everything we do, everything about our methodology. All right, for example, gospel should be center in our personal lives. What does that mean? It means if the gospel's centered in our personal lives, we're going to constantly be preaching the gospel to ourselves. We're going to be in, in, encouraging each other to apply the gospel to various areas of our life. Whether that's sin or something else, we're going to encourage each other with the gospel, applying the gospel. We're going to be encouraging each other in a personal way that we need to trust in Christ's death and resurrection, that, that Christ has paid the penalty for my sin. Christ has set me free from, from the power of my sin. See, He not, he not only changed my position... Jesus changed the power of sin as well. And that's why in Romans chapter 6, a key word is there, is the word know. Paul's saying, my friends, know this truth. Know this. If you don't know this, 
then you're going to keep serving the old master. But, but you've been set free from the old master. Know this truth so that you'll be living in the power of the new master. Another way that the, the gospel should be central is in our sermons. It means we're going to constantly be looking for ways to share the gospel of Jesus Christ no matter where we are in the Bible. We're going to call unbelievers to repentance and belief because the gospel is central in, in our evangelism. We're going to call Christians to live a holy life, to live a lifestyle of, of repentance and faith because the gospel is central. But the gospel should be central in our relationships, all relationships. And, and what that's going to look like, my friends, is you're going to be constantly looking for opportunities to spread God's grace. You're going to be looking for ways to spread God's mercy to other people. So when people are disappointed, you're going to tell them about the gospel. When people are, when they wrong you, when people wrong you, the gospel is going to shape and fashion how you respond to other people who wrong you. It doesn't matter if they're Christians or not. It doesn't matter if, if you're even martyred for your faith. You'll be able to respond like other Christians have. We've heard of so many Christian martyrs, gunmen coming into churches and just shooting people, or whatever, beheadings and so forth. We've heard of a lot of Christians dying for their faith and responding in gracious ways, forgiving even the people who killed them and their loved ones. How do they do that? Because they're living a gospel-centered life. The gospel is shaping their thinking and what they do. But the gospel should shape and fashion our evangelism. It ought to be central to even our own evangelism because we're not to be trusting in some man-made salesman kind of a presentation of, you know, just giving temporal benefits of the gospel. Oh, there's plenty of those, my friends. You know, come to Jesus and you're going to be healthy, wealthy, wise. You know, this prosperity gospel is going, sadly, all over the world Some of the poorest countries in the world have multi-millionaire preachers who are thriving on the prosperity gospel, ripping off poor people. Oh, disgusting. There's all kinds of methodological fads that just pander to our cultural preferences. We want our felt needs met. But if we understand that our evangelism is to be gospel-centered, the gospel is going to shape the way we evangelize, the way we tell the evangel, well, then we're not going to get caught up into these methodological fads then, are we? We're going to then, we're going to trust in the Holy Spirit and the gospel to do the work in people's hearts. We're not going to think we're salesmen of the gospel. We're going to trust in the gospel and God to convert people and transform them. It's not me it's God doing the work. Well, I hope that's helpful. Just a few ways, four ways that we can think of the Gospels uh, centering our whole life as a church. So let me give you a biblical diagnostic. It's kind of like, 
Well, this just happened to me last week, in fact. Uh, My parents' car wouldn't uh, start. It it just stalled at a traffic light. Eventually, it got it going. But you know how your car, if you have one of these cars that have lots of electronic sensors in it, it tells you faults with your car? You know, the light comes up on the dashboard saying, hey, take me to the mechanic and get me fixed. You know, if, if your car could speak to you, that's what it would be telling you, right? Well, my car was doing that. So I took him to the mechanic. He ran a diagnostic check, and it showed that the car had a faulty sensor. The crankshaft sensor was broken. And that's why the car wasn't running properly. And so that diagnostic was able then, then uh, was very helpful to the mechanic, and he, would, he ordered the sensor, put the sensor in. You know what? The car runs great now. And sometimes as a church, we just need to run a diagnostic check to see how are we doing. <laughs> All right? So let me, let me just g- give you a quote that is an anonymous quote. Don't know where this comes from, but it is helpful to ask ourselves, how are we measuring up to this biblical diagnostic? Here it is on the screen quote the supreme indictment that you can bring against the church is that such a church lacks in passion and compassion for human souls a church is nothing better than an ethical club if its sympathies for lost souls do not overflow and if it does not go out to seek to point lost souls to the knowledge of jesus christ end quote so here's my question my friends How passionate, how concerned are you in sharing this good news, the evangel, the gospel of salvation to lost people? I'll confess to you, I'm not where I should be. I'm not where I should be either, okay? So if you're feeling feeling like the diagnostic check is showing a fault, I understand. Because I'm stepping on my own toes at the moment. And I have been all week. The reality is, probably most Christians are there. Most churches are probably there. Most churches don't have enough sympathy for lost souls that just overflow to their community and the nations of the world. My friend, the reality is that local churches are to be declaring the glory of God to all the nations. We're not doing a real good job at that. We can do better. And so a church will do better as, as the gospel becomes the center of our whole, whole life as individuals and our whole life, corporately speaking. And that will that'll just overflow. It doesn't have to be a program. I'm not even recommending a program. I'm just recommending that you know the gospel and love God. And when you do that, you'll be evangelizing. And lost souls will come to Christ. Not because of you, not because of our church, but because God is saving them. May God use us to passionately share the good news of salvation with lost people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your Son. We're thankful that you loved the world and you gave us the greatest gift there is in your Son that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not receive eternal condemnation, but will receive eternal life. Thank you 
for doing what we could have never done. Thank you for saving us from our sins. Thank you for paying the penalty for sin. Cause us to continually believe in this glorious gospel, this good news, and that we would be passionate about it. And that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation to all who believe. May we keep believing. May we not be ashamed. May we not assume the gospel. May we proclaim this gospel. May we preach this gospel to ourselves. May this gospel be center in every area of our life, including our personal lives, our sermons, our relationships, our evangelism, everything else. May we just overflow with good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.